If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Travelling in the Middle Ages was a risky business, fraught with challenges and costs. But nevertheless, many people ventured out into the wider world for many reasons. Professor Anthony Bale of Birkbeck University of London is an expert in the subject, and in this episode, he takes David Musgrove on a guided tour of the medieval travel experience. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anthony Bale, who has written a brilliant new book entitled A Travel Guide to the Middle Ages, The World Through Medieval Eyes. So we are going to be talking about the medieval experience of travel today. So the first question then that we need to get into is, why did medieval people travel? Were they travelling for the same reasons as people travel today? Well, I suppose the main reasons people travel today tend to be business travel or leisure travel, holidays. And they were definitely two of the stimuli to travel in the Middle Ages. But most people's experiences of travel would have been for pilgrimage, for religious travel. That would have been the most normal experience of travel in the medieval West. I mean, your question kind of opens up a bit of a can of worms in a way, because 
it invites a definition of travel. And this has been a notoriously difficult thing for people to define. Can we say that somebody travels if they are a refugee or if they are a conscripted soldier or if they are forced into exile? And really, for my purposes, the definition of travel has been about voluntary or willed travel or the kind of travel where people use it for that they're aware of the experience of being a traveler and really we see in the middle ages of a huge variety of reasons for traveling in my book i have accounts of people who travel as mercenaries people who travel as soldiers people who travel on business as missionaries as speculators and also people who travel out of curiosity i also have a very significant category of people who never travelled at all but write about travelling, who are kind of intellectual travellers or sometimes disparagingly called armchair travellers, who are travellers of the mind. And then, of course, I also have pilgrims and people who travel for religious reasons, which could include crusaders. It could include people travelling to a local shrine or people travelling to Jerusalem or to Rome. And so one of the things that surprised me as I was writing the book really is the variety of kinds of travel and the, and the variety of reasons for traveling. Um, so I'm sitting on the fence a bit, but it's quite hard to define what made people travel in the Middle Ages. What we see is that the variety of journeys is as varied as people's experience of life itself. Well, I'm delighted to have opened a can of worms so early in the interview. So thank you for that. I mean, today we would say travel broadens the mind, wouldn't we? Would a phrase like mm. that have meant anything to, to a medieval person, do you think? Absolutely. And we see time and time again that even when people set out with the most sincere, pious intentions of undertaking a very rigid pilgrimage where they expect to be going just straight in the direction of Rome or Jerusalem, then they get distracted by things on the way, by learning, by curiosity, by unexpected encounters. This happens over and over again, even in the most orthodox spiritual accounts of travel. Travel definitely broadens the mind in the accounts we have from the Middle Ages because these are full of unexpected incidents and unexpected encounters, just like travel often is today. So people repeatedly talk about their experience of what we might now call diversity, of meeting other kinds of people, other religions, other cultures, other languages, other rituals. And travel is always the kind of stage for those kinds of encounters. It's also the case in some of the more extreme sources. So, for instance, what comes to mind is a 15th century writer called Athanasius Nikitin from Tver in Western Russia. And he set off on a kind of quite standard business trip to Persia from Russia and ended up spending a long time in India converting to Islam learning new languages, learning Arabic and Turkish and experiencing totally different cultures. And actually he writes in these very kind of hallucinogenic letters he writes from India that he's kind of losing his identity, that he's forgetting when the festivals are like Easter. He doesn't know what month it is. He's losing his previous inhibitions about eating certain foods, he starts to find the locals very sexually attractive. And so you get a very strong sense that his horizons are 
very definitely broadened and he and he comes back a different person from the person who left okay so you've mentioned a couple of times that the accounts that people have written of their travels and indeed the armchair travelers as well what are the the sources that you can rely on to understand medieval travel what sources have you lent on for your research <laughs> well, rely on is an interesting choice of phrase there because even eyewitness accounts in medieval travel are not entirely reliable, which I'll come to in a second. So I've got interested in this topic partly through editing and translating a book called The Travels of John Mandeville, and I published this about 10 years ago. And Mandeville wrote a book called The Book of Travels and Marvels, and it was a bestseller in the Middle Ages. And it describes the pilgrimage from St. Albans in England to Jerusalem. And then the traveller, Mandeville, goes beyond Jerusalem, ends up going through Persia, India, China, to the Antipodes, Java, Sumatra, and to various islands where there are kind of monstrous races, there are various miracles, marvels, idols, and... The consensus is that Mandeville never travelled further than his monastery, which was probably in England, France or the Low Countries. He was the kind of definitive armchair traveller who derived his accounts of the world from other books, from maps and from other people's accounts, much older accounts. Nonetheless, Mandeville's book was used by real travellers as a travel guide. So we have evidence of people taking his book to the Holy Land and to the Black Sea region and quoting from it. And so it became clear to me that there's a culture of literary travel, of written travels, of the travel guide, which is not necessarily engaged with eyewitness it's about actually what the idea of travel can teach people what the idea of travel can do for the reader rather than the kind of subjective experience that we now tend to privilege of discovering oneself on the road and so the Mandeville's book this is found in 300 manuscripts in lots and lots of printed editions in dozens and dozens of languages and different language traditions. It was a set text at Italian universities in the later Middle Ages, a humanist book. It was read in monasteries in Latin. It was read at the French and English courts. Very influential book. But beside that tradition of kind of writing about marvels and miracles, there are also a, there's also a very, very vibrant tradition in the Middle Ages of travel diaries, itineraries, where the traveller writes about their experience when they come home. Sometimes this is literally an itinerary. This is literally the places you stop at in order to get to Rome. And it's useful for the future traveller to know what the best route is. Other accounts, like those of Felix Fabri, who was a friar from Ulm in southern Germany, are extremely extensive. These are very, very long, engaged, detailed accounts, often in very, very kind of florid Latin. And these were read both for future travellers and for stay-at-home travellers. So I would say probably in the... And I haven't counted how many sources I use, but there's probably, you know, 50 or 60 travelogues, diaries, itineraries that I used, and there were many more that I could have used. It becomes a very common thing to write about your journey. And it's one of the 
places where we find the subjective first person I of literature in the Middle Ages. So as well as, say, I don't know, dream visions or confessions, also travel accounts are very useful to us for hearing the voices of individuals speak from the past. So it sounds like there was a certain amount of practical information potentially available to medieval travellers before they set off, depending on where they were going, I suppose. What were the key things that a a medieval traveller might have decided to take with himself or herself? Well, there were the practical things and then there were the kind of symbolic things. The practical things were money. It was very important to get your financial affairs in order and to have enough money to cover you at least the first part of the journey. And later on in people's journeys, we seem to find people kind of working on the road or begging or receiving charity. But to set off to get your fare was important. To have a letter of safe conduct, almost all medieval travellers need the forerunner of the modern passport. This is a letter from your prince or king or your bishop testifying to your identity and your purpose as a traveller. You may be a diplomat, you may be a papal legate, you may be a pilgrim, you may be a businessman. And the letter explains what your business is and you carry that with you to testify to your good intentions. And that's very, very important. If you don't have that, you can be locked up, you can be expelled, you can be charged, fined. And also, I think, to understand that people in the practical travel guides, they will have information about currency exchange, information about getting a guide, a kind of courier who will go on ahead and tell you what dangers there are on the route and which bridges are open, which gates are open, that kind of thing. Then there's some more symbolic stuff. So if you're a pilgrim, you need to have a staff usually made out of elm wood and a cloak and a wide-brimmed hat. And this will show to people that you're a sincere pilgrim. If you turn up on your pilgrimage dressed in all your finery, in your best clothes, you'll look like you're just on holiday, like you're just on, you know, a kind of dubious trip for all the wrong reasons. You're just looking to get drunk or find a husband or a wife or that you're just curious. But actually, if you're a sincere pilgrim, you've got to go in this pilgrim's costume and you need a bag, a satchel, a wallet, which is secure and has a long strap which will go across your chest so nobody can steal it from you. And these are very important things for all travellers. But then once you go beyond that, we see an enormous variety of the practical and impractical things people take with them. Henry of Derby, for instance, future Henry IV of England, he carries an enormous... I mean, he travels with basically an entire court on wheels with peas and leeks and spices and dozens of horses and suits of armour and huge amounts of paper and ink and this kind of thing. Other people we know, like Marjorie Kemp, setting off from England in the 1410s, travel very, very basically and end up, you know, just with a little bit of money, one outfit, and rely on the charity of strangers as they make their way. So there's clearly a wide range of potential experiences for a traveller, as you just described, from a, a royal personage right down to someone very humble. But I guess there would have been certain sort of fixed costs that would have applied to all travellers. How expensive was it to travel and what would you be definitely charged for as you tried to move across Europe? Great question. Interestingly, actually, in an inn in medieval England, 
costs were fixed is usually just a penny a night. And there was a sense that you were doing God's work by receiving guests and that it was kind of unseemly to extort too much money out of people. You could pay extra for your own room or for meals and that kind of thing. The relatively fixed costs would have been around accommodation. People would have been would have expected in most European cities to be able to find somewhere to stay quite cheaply, often attached to a monastery or a religious house of some kind. It might not have been very comfortable or very luxurious, but it seems that people were it was quite acceptable to turn up in a city and ask for a bed and hope that you'd find somewhere either for free or cheaply. Otherwise, the main cost was tolls and transit fares. There's a wonderful website, the Via Bundes Project, based in Germany, which actually has a map of medieval tolls and fees, and you could pay dozens and dozens of tolls to cross a river, to carry goods through a town, to visit a shrine, and Travellers often record in great detail the expenses of travel. And these only got more acute somewhere like Rome or in Jerusalem, where religious tourists were charged for everything, for every bit of food, for every souvenir, and even for kind of going into a shrine, coming out of a shrine. You know, the the whole thing was designed to extract money from travellers, as modern tourism often is. And people complain unceasingly about the expense of travel, the kind of hidden expenses of travel. Venice was the kind of supermarket for travellers in the Middle Ages where people would stock up on what they needed for all kinds of journeys. And it was very expensive, but it held all the supplies that people would need. And again, this is something that we find particularly in the late 14th century and in the 15th century, lists of what you must buy in Venice. These include medical supplies, cooking pots, You should buy a hen, but make sure that it's laying eggs. You don't want to buy one that is male or infertile in some way. You should buy jugs for water, that kind of thing. And these are things that you won't be able to get further on en route. We also see a very sophisticated set of reports arising about where you can get decent wine and where you can't get decent wine. Um, This is a big preoccupation for travellers. And, yeah, the kind of practical information and the practical expense, this becomes something that people are very, very occupied about. It is a bit of a myth that you have to be wealthy to travel. People were often sent on pilgrimage on behalf of their community. They could also be sent on pilgrimage as a punishment, as a kind of judicial pilgrimage, and you were expected just to do it without any money if you didn't have any money. And, as I said earlier, it was normal and not unseemly to knock at someone's door and say, can you put me up for the night? And they might offer you their spare room or a floor or a bed in an outhouse. And people seem to do that quite routinely. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You mentioned Venice there, and uh, it's probably just worth mentioning, so people would be going to Venice because that's kind of the hub port for travel on to the Middle East. Hopefully we'll come back to that in a second because there's just one thing I wanted to pick up on you about money. A bit I really enjoyed in your book about the intricacies of, of sort of foreign exchange. People were moving through places and currencies were quite different across Europe and more broadly. How did people change money? How did they know what, what they were supposed to be spending in any given place? I think it was a very imprecise science. If you weren't a merchant or if you weren't particularly financially sophisticated, it was very imprecise and you were liable to be ripped off quite badly. There were companies like the Alberti Company or the Bardi Company, which were usually Florentine banking companies, who had houses throughout Europe in the later Middle Ages. They control currency exchange in quite a sophisticated way. And so you see currencies like the Venetian ducat or the Florentine florin or the Bolognino from, from Bologna becoming quite standardized currencies over quite large areas. But that's not really the case in Central Europe or Northern Europe, where you have currencies changing from town to town. They've often got the same names, like Marks or Hellers or Talas or something like that. And their values seem to change enormously. And I suppose like, like financial markets can change today. So there are in lists of kind of intelligence for travellers to say, this is where you should change money, this is where you shouldn't change money. This is what such and such is worth. But it seems to me to be a very imprecise science. That said, once you get to Venice, Venice in the 13th to the 15th century has a very big empire in the eastern Mediterranean going all the way to the Black Sea and the Crimea. It uses the Venetian currency in its overseas territories. And so you get a quite strong sense of a semi-fixed exchange rate based on what things cost in Venice with lots of travellers. And that also then affects the travellers experience in the Holy Land, even when they're in the Mamluk Empire, that the Venetian exchange rate is something like a, a norm in the late Middle Ages. Venetian shipping is the norm. 
it seems to me it required lots of travellers to just make do with the circumstances in which they found themselves in financially. So if I could give you a TARDIS and a time-travelling pass back to medieval Venice, what checks would you put in place to make sure the galley you were getting on was not going to be the end of you? Well, actually, Venice was the world leader in the administration of travel safety and of travel documentation and supervising the traveller. And there was a whole industry led by the Venetian government that was responsible for regulating boats, shipping, travel, and making sure that boats were seaworthy. They had to have a cat. Every boat had to have a cat to try and deter the vermin, which seemed to overrun the boat anyway. You would want to make sure that you bought your ticket off a registered captain and there were two places in Venice at St Mark's and at the Rialto where people seem to have paid for their shipping and that was fairly reliable. You'd want to travel in a group and share intelligence about when a boat was leaving, about what the that the boat was seaworthy and that kind of thing. And also increasingly really from the generation after the great plague of 1348 to 1349, from the late 14th century, maritime governments start to become very concerned about boats and travellers coming from plague areas. So you'd want to make sure that you weren't boarding a boat that had been somewhere where there was plague. And again, that's something that pilgrims and travellers start to share intelligence on. But it's also something that becomes an infrastructure around quarantine islands, certification that you've come from somewhere without plague and that kind of thing. So quite a sophisticated administration develops in Venice, which allows travellers to make safer choices and not complain back to the Venetian government and get their money back. Because ultimately, a happy, healthy traveller is much better for somewhere like Venice or Dubrovnik or Jaffa than people who are miserable and complaining and demanding their money back. Mm. So there's a lovely quote in your book, which I'll just read out. No one should travel who does not desire hardship, trouble, tribulation and the risk of death. Um, so <laughs> so obviously there was a, a clear case there that people understood that it was a risky business. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that quote and who wrote it? And then what were the main risks attendant on, on medieval travel? That quotation was written by a Florentine traveller, Simone Sigoli, who travelled to Jerusalem in the 1380s. And he was a merchant who so was partly scoping out the world of money and of business opportunities, but he was also travelling as a pilgrim. And, he, yeah, he travelled, I think, in 1384 to five. And he wrote one of several accounts of that journey, and he clearly had a pretty awful time. The main risk was that you were going to be gone for a long time in an unpredictable route and that you would become sick. People seem to die of what we now think of as dysentery, kinds of food and water poisoning. They talk about dying of seasickness, but that seems to actually mean a really extreme vomiting, diarrhoea, that kind of thing. People suffer in the heat terribly, particularly in the Holy Land. They travel mainly to Jerusalem in the summer when the seas are calmer, but that means that they're travelling to somewhere where the temperatures, you know, they're in desert temperatures and they're not particularly well set up for it. And, yeah, and 
we know that there's lots and lots of medical advice for travellers about what herbs and spices you should take to settle your stomach, to avoid seasickness, about not drinking local water, which was much dirtier than drinking wine or beer, that kind of thing. But we know that a lot of travellers did die. Exactly what they die of is not clear. There's one traveller who, his clerk wrote a great diary of his travels in the early 16th century, Richard Guilford, an English nobleman, and he seemed to start to suffer as they reach the Holy Land and then expires just before Jerusalem. And his clerk complains about the great expense of kind of getting the friars to take his body into Jerusalem and to bury him there. But he's buried with great solemnity and great celebration in a way, because to die at Jerusalem was thought to be a very, very good death. That, you know, you were dying a very holy death. Conversely, we have the account of somebody in a 15th century pilgrimage from, from southern Germany who objected to being charged to using an outside latrine in Jaffa on the beach, refused to pay to go to the toilet, and the Mamluk guards killed him. They beat him up and that killed him. So that was another way of dying. But really, shipwreck, we have accounts of shipwrecks in the eastern Mediterranean, quite commonly people die there. And so, as I said, people would set off with this idea that they might not come home. And so it was very important to get one's business affairs, one's personal affairs, one's inheritance and that kind of thing in order before you set off. So the sickness that you talked about, I guess that explains why in the accounts that you've been looking at, there's there's a preoccupation with bowel management, I think you, uh, you described as, which, uh, <laughs> which is a, a nice way of framing it. Let's skip on, actually, because one thing we haven't talked about is the gender split in terms of travel. Was it easy for women to travel as much as men? And if so, what was the experience of travelling as a woman in the period? So it's hard to give a definitive answer, but we have records from the English hospice for travellers in Rome from the 15th century, which show who was coming in and out of the hospice. And this, and actually there's a surprising number of women, did make the journey to Rome, often widows or single women, women travelling with their daughters or sisters, sometimes with their husbands, Probably something like one in six or one in seven travellers was female to Rome. But Rome, of course, was a very important pilgrimage destination. That wouldn't be true of, say, business destinations like Armenia or the Silk Road. What we don't see is many women writing accounts of their journeys. So Marjorie Kemp in England, Bridget of Sweden, who went from Sweden to Rome, or Dorothea of Montau, who went from what's now kind of near Gdansk in northern Poland to Aachen. These tend to be religious women whose journeys are written about after the fact. There's not many women writing kind of travel diaries from this time. The women whose journeys we do know about, they tend to be especially concerned about being attacked, both kind of physically in terms of being sexually assaulted or physically assaulted for their money or for their goods, for their horses, that kind of thing, and and being very vulnerable, having to rely on male guides, on, on the company that they're in, on their husbands or their travelling companions to look after them. But that said, we also have accounts of aristocratic women setting out who would maybe take a yeoman, a couple of soldiers, a boy, a groom to help. And that's, again, it's not totally unusual. It's, it's not as difficult as you might think. Women 
were expected to get the permission of their husbands. Married women were expected to get the permission of their husbands before they set out. And we have quite a lot of records of that. We also, and I don't really write about this in the book very much, but we have accounts of both women going on pilgrimage for nefarious purposes, to kind of find a husband, to have fun. This was a bit of a kind of anti-feminist stereotype in the Middle Ages that you see in Chaucer in his account of the wife of Bath. But also you see how travel could be very dangerous for women, that repeatedly people were attacked. We also see in the Black Sea region women being enslaved and travelled, being kind of moved around the Black Sea area and the Eastern Mediterranean as slaves who then often end up serving in the infrastructure of travel. And then there's also some kind of slightly forgotten about people. And I'll give you one example from one of my favourite travellers who I've mentioned a couple of times is Marjorie Kemp. She sets off from England in the 1410s to go to Rome and Jerusalem. And she has a serving maid with her. And we know very little about this serving maid, but the serving maid gets fed up of her and abandons her in Rome and ends up working in the wine cellar at the English hospital there and this is an unnamed woman this seems to be a single woman a young woman and that seems to have been fairly unexceptional that she she traveled and that she found job found accommodation she as far as we know she prospered in Rome and so I think there were probably more options open to female travelers than we might at first think but they were also quite often quite fraught Sure. Okay. So, look, so the main thrust of the conversation we've had so far has been focused around Western Europe, as, as we would know it today, and the Holy Land in terms of the pilgrimage routes. But your book goes much, much wider than that, doesn't it? So I wonder, how far did medieval travellers go? Were, were people regularly going beyond the boundaries of the area I've just described? And if so, where would have been kind of the most difficult or most alien places that European travellers might have encountered? Well, to be honest, I mean, we find people thinking about Cyprus or Rhodes or Alexandria or Cairo as pretty alien in the Middle Ages if you're from Western Europe. But from the 13th century, there is actually a very, very established east-west route, what sometimes we think of as the Silk Routes, going all the way to Karakorum, the capital of the Mongol Empire, now in Mongolia, and then to Kambalik, what's now Beijing, and also to the western coast of India and around kind of what's now Cochin and to Persia, Hormuz, an abandoned town now, but that was a great entrepot in the Middle Ages, full of people. You know, a Venetian or Florentine merchant could meet a Chinese or Maldivian merchant in this one place. And Ethiopia. Um, that was, again, there was a very established link. Ethiopia, then a Christian country, an established link between the Mediterranean and Ethiopia, both for religion and for, for business. That was the kind of contour of the world. I'd say if you stretched a line from, say, I don't know, Paris to Beijing, Kambalik, and then southwards to Ethiopia via Venice and Cairo, you've got a kind of T-shape that would mirror the T and O shape of a medieval map. Beyond that, travellers were really going 
into very intrepid, unknown territory. Japan was known about but not visited by Western travellers. Even Marco Polo doesn't claim to have been there. Java and Sumatra, where we know that the spice came from, things like nutmeg, came to Western Europe from there. But there's only one or two travellers that we can, with any, not even certainty, but we can even think were possibly there in places like Java or Sumatra. And sub-Saharan Africa, again, very, very few people made it there. Going westwards, Iceland had a close connection to to somewhere you know, like Norway and Bristol and Western ports. And we have accounts of Icelanders in Western Europe. But then what was beyond that, the Azores and the Canary Islands were still pretty exotic for Europeans until the later 15th century. And then the wider Atlantic was a source of great speculation that the Fortunate Isles, the Isle of St. Brendan, various miraculous islands, places of the Amazons, and that kind of thing were lying out there. And of course, in the pre-Columbus era, the idea was that you would go west from Portugal and the next landfall you would really meet would be Japan and China. Um, that was that was what was there before the knowledge of America. That said, the book follows Mandeville's itinerary and we do go all the way to the Antipodes. The Antipodes were known about but not visited or traversed by Europeans. Um, people in the Western Middle Ages knew that the world was round. Very important for me to say that. Nobody thought they were going to fall off a flat sheet, but people didn't know how to get around it. And so when people went below the equator, which they definitely did, they were amazed to see the changing stars in the firmament and the changing weather and that kind of thing. But there was still a lot of speculation about whether there could be human habitation in the far Antipodes and what the extent of the Antipodes was. But this also became the subject of very kind of productive speculation by travellers about what lay beyond the known world. Fantastic. Okay, finally, just to spin things on its head, do we have many accounts of people coming from these places outside of Western Europe and actually visiting what we would now call Western Europe? And if so, how did they find the experience? We don't have many, but we do have some. And the book actually has a chapter in it about visitors to the West. And one of the reasons I wanted to put this in was a kind of corrective to the Western, what we'd think of as like the kind of the, the Western perspective, the Western gaze of travel writing, where that kind of subjects the entire world to the traveller's perspective. And so I wanted to kind of put some travellers in who came to the West. Not many actually came to the kind of far West. People came to somewhere like Mecca from China or to Hormuz and Aden. And so I've got in there the accounts of a Chinese writer, Ma Huan, who visited India and Persia. I've also got a little account of some of the people who were trafficked back to the West, including a Turk brought by Henry of Derby back to England and kind of Ethiopians and Turks and that kind of thing being brought back. I've got the account of an Armenian prince, Hetum, who ended up spending a lot of time in Poitiers 
and encouraging the West to pursue a new crusade in the East, and also a wonderful account of a Mongol diplomat emissary called Raban Bar Salma, who was a Mongolian Christian, who in the, I think it was in the 12th, 60s and 70s, ended up going all around Europe, all the way to Bordeaux, Paris, met the King of England, a long stay in Rome where he met the Pope, and he records his accounts of the West, which seems to me to be very similar to a kind of voyage of curiosity, discovery. He records marvels. He gets gifts. He looks to things around kind of novelty, beauty, things which seem to him strange and marvellous, just like many Western travellers do. There's more I could have done with that. That would be a whole other book of people's accounts of the Eastern accounts of the West. But as the book goes on, really, I try to kind of fragment and disturb that idea of East and West, that actually there's a lot of synthesis between the two, really from the kind of 13th century onwards. That was Professor Anthony Bale. His book, A Travel Guide to the Middle Ages, The World Through Medieval Eyes, is out now from Penguin. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.